Thanks for having me back again. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Presbyterian Church just down the road. I've always enjoyed coming here. You always make me feel welcome. It's truly really a treat to be here. Um, I just want to say I, I feel that you've been blessed to have Chris Baker as your transition pastor. I know he's not gone yet. You'll still see him again. I'm just filling in this week. But um, I've gotten to know him a little bit while he's here. I feel like he's just done an outstanding God. He has a special calling from God, I think, that not too many have to be a transition pastor to help churches kind of figure out what they want, who they are, and what they want in the next pastor, and what would be best for them. And so um, I've really enjoyed getting to know Chris, and I know you have as well. Now, Chris Carpenter, I haven't met yet, but I've gotten to know him a little bit uh, as he prepares to come here, and he just seems outstanding. I mean, I think he's going to have a, be a great Bible teacher, a great leader, a great shepherd of the people, has a vision for the community. Just going to be wonderful to have him and his wife, Emily, here. Two kids, I haven't met any of them yet, but I'm looking forward to meeting them. Uh, probably, I guess you all have met him, or some of you have met him, but looking forward to meeting him when he gets here. He has a daughter with Down syndrome. I have a daughter with Down syndrome, so I'm excited to have that connection there. And their daughter, Shiloh, is going to be a blessing to you as well. The First Corinthians chapter 12 says that the weaker members of the body are indispensable to the body of Christ. And so you're getting an indispensable member there in Shiloh and, and the entire family. So it's going to be wonderful to meet Chris and for you all to have him as your pastor here. I know you're going to help him and serve him well, and he's going to lead and serve well here as well. So thanks for having me back. Please turn to Matthew chapter 18 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 18. A parable is a story from everyday life that has spiritual meaning, and Jesus this morning is going to give us a parable about forgiveness. And it's a timely parable because we all need to be forgiven And we all need to forgive. So please stand and read along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven Some translations say 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Let's pray. Father, please use your word like a surgeon's scalpel this morning. 
please open us up. Please remove this sin that is in us. And then please close us up so that we are now stronger to love and serve and obey you. Please change us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Robert Louis Stevenson told the story of two sisters who lived in a single room together and they had a falling out over a theological difference. And because of their lack of money or fear of scandal, they stayed rooming together, but for the rest of their lives, they didn't talk to each other. They even drew a chalk line down the middle of the room where they were living and the chalk line bisected the door so that one would go out the door on her side and then in the door, but never crossing over to the other person's side of the chalk line. And the chalk line bisected the fireplace. So one would cook her meal in the fireplace, but never crossing over into the other person's side. And so each night they would go to sleep and they listened to the sound of their enemy on the other side of the chalk line's heavy breathing. Unwilling to forgive each other, they lived in this grinding silence for the rest of their lives. Lack of forgiveness is incompatible with being a Christian. Because God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. If we don't, we'll be miserable like the two sisters. We'll lose joy, we'll have damaged relationships, we'll carry bitterness into old age. It'll hurt us as much or more than it will hurt the person that we refuse to forgive. But it's hard to forgive when somebody has stolen from from us or harmed us or spoken evil against us But the Christian response is that we must forgive somebody who has wronged us rather than to seek revenge upon that person. Because God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. God has forgiven us. Peter gets us into this topic by asking a very good question in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that three times was enough to forgive somebody. They wrote, if a man commits a transgression the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not. Peter's offer to forgive his brother seven times was generous compared with the Jewish teaching of the day. But Jesus shocks everyone by replying that we must forgive a brother countless times. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Or your translation might say 77 times. Jesus isn't setting an upper limit for forgiveness. He isn't saying you should forgive 490 times, then the 491st time not forgive. He's saying we must always be prepared to forgive when our brother sins and repents. We must forgive an unlimited number of times. And he reinforces this in Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So forgiveness must be the way of life for a Christian. If our brother sins and repents, we must forgive him. Why must we forgive our brother? Because God has forgiven us. Jesus illustrates this with a parable. Verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the servant in this parable was apparently a high-level administrator, like the governor of a province. He seemingly had, or possibly had, access to large amounts of money, 
Maybe he collected taxes for the king. But when the king settled his accounts, he found that this servant owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was equivalent to 375 tons of silver, or the purchasing power of 200,000 years of wages for the common worker. In today's terminology, the servant owed several billion dollars. It was an incomprehensible amount. The servant could not even begin to pay such a debt. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. It was common in the Roman world that if someone couldn't pay his debt, that he would be sold into slavery to recover the debt. So realizing his fate, the servant pleaded for mercy, verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. The servant didn't seem to understand that he could never repay the debt. It was too big, but he acknowledged his guilt. He humbled himself. He begged for patience and he promised to try to pay back the debt. This response moved the king to pity, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king in this parable represents God. The servant represents all who have been forgiven by God. The mountain of debt represents the sin each of us owes to God, or represents the debt of sin each of us owes to God. This debt is the debt that Jesus paid for on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins and paid the debt that we owe. So if we believe in Jesus, God has forgiven our sins. He's forgiven our past, present, and future sins. He's forgiven those sins of attitude and thoughts and words and actions. He's forgiven sins against him and against other people. He's forgiven our accidental sins and our premeditated sins. He's forgiven us when we've done what we're not supposed to do and we, when we have not done what we're supposed to do. God has forgiven our incalculable sin debt because Christ paid the price for the debt, for our debt on the cross. God canceled our debt in full. A few years ago, probably quite a few years ago, I was reading a newspaper article titled Toddler's Reign of Terror Costs $2,300 in Repairs. This was written a number of years ago, so we can probably triple the costs here in this newspaper article to bring it into modern times. But the article read, at age two, Robin Hawkins already is a homewrecker. When she is old enough to ask for an allowance, her father intends to show her a bill for $2,300 worth of family belongings she has destroyed in a two-month rampage. It all started when Alice the cat went down the drain. I heard her saying, bye-bye, fluff-fluff, bye-bye, her father said. I ran into the bathroom just in time to watch Alice the cat going down the toilet. Cost, $2.50 for the stuffed animal and $62.75 for the plumber. One week later, Teddy Bear was placed in the dishwasher on top of the heating element. Cost, $8 for Teddy Bear, $25 for smoke damage to the kitchen, and $375 to repair the dishwasher. When the Hawkins returned from a weekend trip, they opened the refrigerator and inside it, everything was warm. The repairman found little magnetic letters in the vents. Cost, $3.50 for the magnetic letters, $120 for the ruined food, and $310 to repair the refrigerator. That evening, we sat down to watch TV. When I turned it on, everything was green, Hawkins said. Robin had twisted the fine tune so far that it broke inside. Cost, $115 to repair the television. 
The next day, Robin's mother went to pick up her husband at work. Robin was sleeping in her safety seat, so Mrs. Hawkins decided to leave her while she ran in to get him. She put the keys in her purse and left the purse in her car. Robin drove the car about 400 feet before running into a tree. Cost $1,029.52 to repair the car. Robin also has lifted $620 out of the cash register at a supermarket, drilled 50 holes in the walls of a rental property owned by her parents, and painted walls with nail polish. When the Hawkins returned from grocery shopping one afternoon, they parked the car halfway in the garage and decided to keep Robin strapped in her safety seat while they unloaded the groceries. Then they heard a loud grinding noise. Robin had locked herself in the car and was pushing the control button to the electric garage door and bouncing it off the hood of the car. Total bill to be presented to Robin when she's old enough to ask for an allowance, $2,300. So Robin's parents had itemized the damages from Robin's two-month rampage, and they were prepared to present a bill to her when she was old enough to pay it. If God itemized our sin damages, the list would be a mile long. The amount of debt that we owe would be incalculable. We'd never be able to pay it. And God has itemized our sin debt, but he's nailed it to the cross and he's canceled our debt. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God nailed our record of sin to the cross, canceling it. So the total bill that we owe God for our sins when we believe in Jesus is zero. God has forgiven us. We don't have to pay. Because Jesus paid it all. And because God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. The forgiven servant in Jesus' parable did exactly the opposite in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. A denarius was equal to a day's wage for a common worker. A hundred denarii in this parable is equal to about four months' wages, or several thousand dollars by today's standards. It's a sizable amount, but it's a pittance compared to the billions that the first servant had been forgiven. The first servant was appalling in his treatment of his fellow servant. He had been forgiven much, yet he was cruel in his violent treatment of the servant who owed comparatively little. And notice the words of the second service, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The second servant uses almost the exact same words in begging for patience that the first servant had used with the king back in verse 26. So we, if we are reading this parable for the first time, we expect the first servant to show the same compassion and grace to his fellow servant that he had received from the king. Instead, he treats the second service despicably. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Painful though it may be, Jesus wants us to identify with the first servant, the unforgiving servant. He wants us to say, I am the first servant. I owe an immeasurable debt to God. All my debt, vast and unpayable, he has forgiven me out of his pure mercy. How will I now respond to my fellow debtors? Thinking about the vastness of God's mercy will inspire mercy in us. Because God has shown us mercy, we must show mercy to others. 
because God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. Failure to forgive will provoke God's anger. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Because the forgiven servant had failed to show the same forgiveness to his fellow servant, the master delivered him to the jailers until his debt had been paid. The servant will be tortured until he pays back all his debt, which he can never do because of such a huge amount. Jesus now summarizes this parable with a frightening warning in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those who profess to be Christians, those who claim to have been forgiven, yet live lives characterized by an unforgiving spirit, demonstrate that they've not truly received God's forgiveness. It's part of the character of a Christian to forgive as we have been forgiven. Refusal to provide forgiveness to others demonstrates that God's forgiveness has not been received. John Wesley, when he was serving as a missionary to the British colonies in America, was having a terrible time with a particular General Oglethorpe, who was noted for his pride and unbending nature. In a particularly proud moment, Oglethorpe said, I never forgive. And Wesley replied, Then I hope, sir, you never sin. Wesley knew that if we pride ourselves on never forgetting a wrong, if we make unforgiving, an unforgiving spirit of virtue, then we're demonstrating that we ourselves have not been forgiven. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So if your life is characterized by a lack of forgiveness, then you must plead for mercy from our compassionate king. You must recognize that Christ died to pay the sin debt of his people. And therefore you must repent of your sins, including your sin of unforgiveness. Ask God to forgive you, trusting in, trust in Jesus alone to pay your debt of sin and ask him to give you power to forgive as you've been forgiven. By God's power, we can begin to live lives that are characterized by forgiveness. And while we're thinking about forgiveness, I want to answer some questions now that you might be asking. First question, what does our forgiveness of others look like? It means when we forgive others that we will let go of the desire to make someone pay for his or her offense against me. I put a little quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson in your bulletin insert. Why don't you look at your bulletin insert? It says, Puritan Thomas Watson, we forgive others when we, and he lists several things that will characterize what forgiveness of others looks like. It's really helpful when I modernize the language from the Puritan days. We forgive others when we avoid seeking revenge, when we will not do our enemies harm, when we wish well to our enemies, when we grieve at their troubles, when we pray for them, and when we seek reconciliation with them, and when we are willing to help them. So even if we've spoken words of forgiveness to someone, we haven't fully forgiven that person until we've gotten rid of plans to harm him, replacing them with plans to help him if needed, to pray for him, and to reconcile with him. So keep Watson's 
quote there in front of you, what forgiveness looks like, because these attitudes and actions will demonstrate a forgiving heart. Second question, what if our brother's repentance doesn't seem to be sincere? I know there's many times that somebody's asked you for forgiveness and you've said or thought, well, you're not even sincere in what you're asking. So here's what you must do. You must let go of the desire, first of all, to make the offender pay for the offense. And also realize that we can help someone by forgiving him. We all sin daily. We all need forgiveness. And it's hard to ask for forgiveness. And you know that when you've asked for somebody to forgive you and they said, no, I'm not going to forgive you, it's demoralizing. So maybe forgiving a brother will encourage him and will give him hope to turn to God himself in true repentance for sin and a trust in Christ. I heard about a young man in a print shop. He worked in a print shop and he used some of the printing equipment to make something for his own personal use. He wasn't a Christian. And he left the company, did some other things. But a few years later, he was feeling guilty that he had stolen from the company by using the equipment for personal use. So he called the owner. He said, please forgive me when I work for you. I use the company to make some personal printing work for me. And the owner, who was a Christian, quickly and readily forgave him. And the man who had asked forgiveness was touched by this because he saw a living example of God's forgiveness played out in his life through his former boss. And so by being forgiven and seeing Christian forgiveness in action, the man can himself connected to God on a deeper level because of the forgiveness that he had received. And our forgiveness may have the same effect on somebody else by modeling the forgiveness that God gives us by forgiving another, we might be able to help another to draw near to God himself. So we must be quick to forgive. Now, third question, what if someone says, please forgive me, but this person is clearly manipulating you. In other words, it doesn't seem this person means at all. It's just manipulation. So we must do the same thing that Thomas Watson recommends. We must let go of the desire, first of all, to make him pay. By praying for him, by doing good to him, by not seeking revenge. We can do these things without true repentance on the other person's part. So if somebody says, please forgive me, but they clearly are just trying to manipulate you, You can still pray, do good, not seek revenge, wish well to him, whether he is truly repenting or not. Let's look at the example of a man who physically abuses his wife, and each repeatedly, and each time he abuses his wife, he says, I repent. Now, the wife can do the things on Watson's list, even if he's not sincere. She can also call the police, separate from him, obtain a restraining order, agree to meet with him only with a third party present, In other words, she can forgive while prescribing painful consequences for him and protection for herself. So the goal in a broken relationship is reconciliation. And for reconciliation to take place, for the relationship to be restored, then repentance and forgiveness are both needed. The sinning party needs to repent and the sinned against party needs to forgive for reconciliation to take place. If the abusive husband truly repents, then he will take baby steps to earn back his wife's trust. So the, but the wife can say, I forgive you, but I don't yet trust you. But she must check her own heart in saying this. She may not say, I don't trust you, and I don't ever want to trust you, and I won't accept your efforts to earn my trust. That would be an unforgiving spirit on her part. But she can say, I forgive you, and take baby steps to ensure, or can, not baby steps, but take important steps to ensure her safety and attempt then to bring about reconciliation. So if a brother's repentance doesn't seem sincere, 
we still must be inclined to forgive and then take steps of safety and try to seek restoration in the relationship. But what if someone simply will not repent? We still can forgive in the sense that we will not seek revenge, we'll wish well for the person, we'll pray for the person, we even can pray for our enemy. We can wish well for enemy, we cannot seek revenge for enemy, we can seek to be reconciled to our enemy, we can do these things, but the relationship is not restored until repentance takes place. So we can forgive a person who sinned against us, but the relationship is not yet restored, it's still broken, until the person truly repents and then takes steps to earn back your trust. Another way to say it is we can judicially forgive. We can judicially forgive. We can lift any desire toward being the judge of this person, exacting revenge or wanting condemnation for the person. Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So to judicially forgive someone is to turn the matter over to God the judge, who alone can change someone's heart. But it's an incomplete forgiveness. With, by judicially forgiving, we're not condemning the person. But there's no relational forgiveness yet because you're not yet trusting the person. If a non-repentant person is a threat to you, you can forgive in the sense of not wanting to make him pay, but you will not yet trust him and you'll take precautions for safety for you and your family. What if a non-Christian sins against you? Must you forgive him? By definition, a non-Christian won't offer real repentance toward God or even toward you. You can forgive him by not seeking revenge, by wishing him well, by praying for him, but you'll have no relationship of spiritual fellowship until he truly repents to God and toward you. So you can forgive, but you won't have a spiritual relationship and you won't yet trust the person. So to summarize this, With someone who sins against you who's non-repentant, you can forgive in the sense that you don't seek revenge, but it's an incomplete forgiveness. He'd have to repent before the relationship can be made whole. And he must must begin to earn back your trust, which will take place over time. So you you can forgive immediately. Trust is earned back over time. So sometimes you will forgive someone but not yet trust the person. Michael Wilkins writes, A few years ago when bumper stickers were popular, one stood out to me. I don't get mad, I get even. It was meant to be humorous, but it had a chilling effect on me because it described my attitude just a few years prior. I was raised by a stepfather who caused my family and me a great deal of pain, and I carried a deep animosity toward him for years. When I was in Vietnam, my animosity became almost obsessive, and I vowed that the first time I saw him on my return, I would kill him. I would make him pay for what he had done to our family. I returned a few months later, and within a year had become a Christian. My world began to change, and I put that stepfather out of my mind. I had not thought about him much until about four years later when he suddenly showed up where my wife and our little girl were living. He had tracked us down. My wife, being the loving person that she is, invited him in. As we sat and talked politely, the vow came to my mind. I then told him, I made a vow in Vietnam that the first time I saw you, I would kill you. Today is that day. I will never forget the look of terror that came over his face. He started to sweat and slide down on the couch. I went on, but I now know that I'm no better a person than you. God has forgiven me, 
And if he can forgive a sinner like me, I can forgive you. I want to not allow you to hurt my family again, so don't think that this is made out of weakness. Rather, I forgive you because I have been forgiven. We can notice several things about Wilkins' response. He was able to forgive his stepfather because he was aware of his own sinfulness and his own forgiveness that he had received from God. So he no longer felt the desire to bring about revenge upon his stepfather that had sinned against him and his family. But he was not yet trusting his stepfather. He said, I will not allow you to hurt my family again. So he was saying, I will take precautions until the stepfather repents and trusts in Christ. The stepfather would have to earn back trust over time. And then if reconciliation takes place and trust is built back up, then all involved will experience joy and peace in the relationship. This will help us a lot as we work through complicated issues of broken relationships. We can forgive, we can do our part, but the relationship won't be restored and trust won't be won't return until the person who has sinned against you also does his part, which is to repent, and then begin to earn back your trust over time. It's hard to resist the temptation to seek revenge when somebody has sinned seriously against you. Mere human determination will not allow us to forgive. We need God's power to be able to forgive. Bathing our hearts and minds in what we're learning today that God has forgiven us will empower us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. There was a traveler in Burma who, after crossing through a river, came out with blood-sucking leeches attached to all over his body. And his first impulse was to rip those tormentors out of his flesh, but his assistant who was traveling with him said, no, if you rip them out, then parts of the leeches will stay in you and the poison will get into your system. She said, no, let me prepare an herbal bath for you. You will bathe in the bath and the leeches will fall off. So the traveler sat in the herbal bath. He soaked in the herbal waters and then the leeches fell off. Bathing in the knowledge of God's forgiveness will cause an unforgiving spirit to fall away from us. And this is what today's parable is about. Because God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are amazed by the forgiveness you've given us. As far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us. And Father, we want to forgive as we have been forgiven. We have been sinned against in small ways, but also in large ways, in heinous ways. And Father, by our own power, we do not have it within us to forgive those who have sinned seriously against us. We ask that you would give us this power as we are bathed this morning in this knowledge that you have forgiven us. Please enable our unforgiveness to fall away so that we might forgive others. Father, I pray for particular relationships that are broken within this congregation or with somebody here today, with somebody outside the congregation. Father, it is so hard to forgive. I ask that you would, by your power of your Holy Spirit, enable the person who has been sinned against to forgive. And Father, we ask that also the one who has done the sinning, We ask that you would work in their hearts so that they would repent, would confess, and would begin taking baby steps to earn the trust back with those they have sinned against. So, Father, we ask that you would restore relationships today. Please enable us to forgive those who sinned against us. Please enable us to repent of the sins that we have committed against others. Please restore relationships by your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.